Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Mark 8. So this is a pivot point in Mark. It's not just halfway because it's 16 chapters and it's chapter 8. It's halfway in terms of the, the flow of the story. So today we're going to see the really outside of Good Friday, the lowest point of Mark 8, and then outside of Easter Sunday, the highest point, excuse me, of, of the book of Mark. This is both the lowest point and the highest point for Jesus in his ministry, again, outside of Easter weekend. So we'll read first the low point and then the high. So chapter 8, starting in verse 11. So remember, Jesus has been traveling around Gentile areas for the past several weeks, maybe month, we don't know, but he's traveled to three different Gentile areas. He's worked a miracle in three different Gentile areas. Highly unusual for a Jewish man to be doing what he's doing. Now he's back in a Jewish area, and that's what we'll pick up in verse 11. The Pharisees came, and they began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Jesus sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? He, they answered seven. He said, do you still not understand? So again, this is low point for Jesus in terms of people understanding who he is. The point of Mark is, is to present Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and to persuade us to follow him. This is the low point in people understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And following him. First, we have the Pharisees. The language is actually much more aggressive than what than the way it appears in in the NIV that I read. The, they're they're really coming at him. Again, the words are much more aggressive. This is not a genuine, humble, uh, teach me kind of question. Show me a sign. It's much more demanding. Uh, it's much more. It's more of a it, your your Bible. My Bible says it's a test, or that word is even to tempt. They're trying to really back Jesus into a corner, these religious leaders are. He's been in these Gentile areas, and we said one of the reasons is he's trying to avoid all of the controversy from the Pharisees, and as soon as he gets out of the boat back in Jewish territory, they're, they're on him. And they're not asking for a miracle. In Mark, a sign is not a miracle. A miracle is not a sign. They're two different things. Jesus has worked miracles, and the Pharisees have seen some of them. Maybe not these exact individuals, but their group. They saw Jesus heal a paralytic. They got upset because he said, your sins are forgiven. They've seen Jesus heal on Saturdays in the synagogue because they got upset and said, you don't need to be doing those things. You're working on the Sabbath. At one point, they say Jesus is demon-possessed because he's, he's, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. So they know his reputation. They, they're, they're, there are miracles that he's performed that they're aware of. That's not what they're asking for. What they're asking for is something that's undeniable. They're asking for a no-doubt confirmation from God that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what they want. That's what they're saying, a sign from heaven. We want God in heaven to tell us 
in the ways that, that we would want that you're the Messiah. We don't want there to be any question, no doubt. And Jesus says no. That word deep sigh, that's a, that's, that's a very emotional word. And, and when he turns his back on them, he's, he's, he's doing that and gets in the boat. He's walking away from them. They don't get it. So by, by trade, by profession, by education, these guys should have been the most ready to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They, they knew the Old Testament as well as anyone. Their expectation, they lived their life the way they lived their life because they believed if we live our life this way, God will send the Messiah. They were expectant, at least theoretically. And they missed him completely. They had evidence. They were never going to get proof that precludes the need for faith. But they had evidence. They just couldn't see it. And then he gets into the boat, and the first thing he does is warns his disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And the disciples are thinking about it on the most literal level possible. They're talking about bread. That's because we only have one loaf of bread. And Jesus is, again, the, this is a low point for him. Like they're, they're not getting it. And he's saying, like, can't y'all see? Don't you understand? Uh, you, you just collected 19 baskets of bread. That's, n- that's not what we're talking about. At all. Yeast in, uh, in the New Testament, except in one place, is negative. It's a metaphor for evil. Only one place is it positive. Pharisees and Herod are about as different as you can get. Their circles don't overlap hardly at all. The Pharisees are very righteous. They're very devout. They're honored by the people. Herod is a nominal Jew at best. He is not respected or liked by the people. The only place where their circles overlap, in my opinion, is both the Pharisees and Herod, they, they don't acknowledge Jesus for who he is. The Pharisees think he's a demon-possessed tool of Satan, and Herod thinks he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Herod had cut off John the Baptist's head. They're, they're both mistaken. They both had evidence of who Jesus was, but they, didn't, they, they couldn't recognize him for who he was. And Jesus is saying to his 12 closest followers, y'all can fall into that same trap you got to be careful. you got to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees in here. What he's talking about is this tendency to miss him, to misunderstand who he is. And in that moment on the boat, he's going, y'all don't, you're not getting it. I'm not talking about whether you're going to have lunch today. Like we've, we've taken care of that. You've seen. That's not a problem. Again, 19 basketfuls of bread. What I'm talking about is this evil from both the Pharisees and Herod, this unwillingness to see me. Low point, high point. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, so this is our second straight spitting miracle. And it's just, maybe, I don't know, if it's grosser to spit on somebody's tongue or their eyes, they're, they're both bad. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then it must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So you've got to read both of those things together, both the miracle of Jesus healing this blind man and Peter's recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. And Peter's speaking for the disciples. That's not personal to him. Those questions are plural. Who do y'all say that I am? So Peter, is, he's speaking for the 12. That's a corporate confession. So Jesus, that, that Jesus does heal that blind man. That, that happened, but it only happens in Mark. It's the only place that we see this miracle is in Mark. And this is the only miracle that Jesus performs in any of the Gospels where he, he has to pray twice. And why is that? It's not because this guy's blindness was particularly stubborn or Jesus didn't eat his Wheaties or whatever. It's, it's not that. It's, it's a parable for us. This man's eyes being opened progressively, it's a parable of the way we begin to see spiritually. The way our hearts are illuminated over time or there's a, there's a progression, there's, there's stages if you like that. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's why this guy's not healed immediately. The first time, it's the only time it ever happens. And it's really significant in this context. We've just seen blind Pharisees, people who by education and profession should be the most open to Jesus' identity. We've just seen not understanding disciples, people who by proximity and relationship should be the most willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And they're all blind. They're, they're not seeing. It's the low point in terms of Jesus' mission. They're, nobody's getting it. The people who are the closest to me aren't getting it. The religious professionals aren't getting it either. And now we have this blind man, and he's blind. And again, that his physical condition is a parallel to both the disciples and the Pharisees' spiritual condition. And then Jesus heals him partially. He touches him, spits on his eyes, and then the guy can see. But he says, I see people, but they look like trees. And so Jesus prays for him again or touches him again. And then he says he can see clearly. At this point, that's where the disciples are. They're at step one, we'll just call it. They see Jesus. Peter says, you're the Messiah, but he doesn't see him clearly because when Jesus says, this is the kind of the Messiah I'm going to be, Peter rebukes him. He rebukes Jesus, which you don't, you don't do that. But Peter does. That's how strongly he feels. That's not what the messiahs don't suffer and die. That's not what they do. So then G Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like you're, you're, you're missing it completely. You see me, but I look like a tree to you. You're not seeing me clearly. We'll talk more about the second half of that next week. The disciples don't see clearly until Easter. There's this progression for them from blindness to, well, maybe we can say partial sight to clear or full understanding of who Jesus is. There's, again, there's a, they're, they're walking a path there. It's not instantaneous. And I think Mark wants us to know like that, that's our journey as well. We move, we're, we're, everyone is somewhere on the continuum from completely blind to being able to see perfectly and nobody's here. None of us see Jesus perfectly for who he is. None of us are seeing totally clearly 
We're somewhere in between. There's billions of people in the world and thousands of people in our community who are blind. They don't see them at all. And you can, for multiple reasons. Some because they've never even heard his name. Some people because they've heard and they've rejected, but they're not seeing him. They're like the Pharisees and like the disciples. And everybody in this room was in that spot at some point. And some, maybe you still are. You're not, you, you don't acknowledge, you don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and just like the, the solution for this blind man was friends who cared about him and brought him to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. So that's the same thing that we do. We bring people that we love to Jesus and say, open their eyes. That's the only thing that changed in those two verses. That's kind of the, the, another point of that healing of the blind man. It's Jesus who opens his eyes. There's nothing that he did. One of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, guilt, and righteousness. Another one of his responsibilities to, is to lead us into the truth of who Jesus is. That's why we pray. Jesus, open the eyes of the hearts of those who don't know you. We pray that they would know the greatness of your love for them and the greatness of their need for a Savior. All of us have to have our eyes open to that. None of us know that intuitively or, or naturally. That's revelation. It comes to us from outside. And the Holy Spirit will lead us into that. And he'll lead our loved ones into that. That's why we pray for them to be saved. That's what we're praying for. Open the eyes of their hearts so that they can see how much you love them and how much they need you. That's where everybody begins. Many of you, most of you in this room, at, at some point, you, you had that Peter moment. Where you acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah. He's my Savior. He's the Lord. I recognize him for who he is. And that's wonderful. Now, the, the next part for us, those who are in that group, is to have the humility to acknowledge. But I don't see him exactly for who he is. I don't see him perfectly. And that's a hard one for us to admit, particularly if you've been a Christian for a while. You've read, you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a dozen times each. You've done every Beth Moore on who Jesus is. Like you've done all of those things and we can begin to think, oh, I got it. Yeah, I got it. It's difficult for us to, again, kind of maintain that posture of humility to say, I don't have it. I don't have it fully and completely. Y'all know what a caricature is, right? It's a, it's a picture of a person that intentionally, that's an intentional distortion, Certain attributes are exaggerated and certain attributes are underemphasized. You can still recognize the person, but it's not a true picture. We all have a caricature of who Jesus is. There's certain things that we overemphasize and certain things that we don't. That picture right there. So how many Middle Eastern Jews do you know that look like that? It's somewhere around none. That, that's what we, we have this tendency to create Jesus in our own image. It's what we do. And it doesn't, for most of us, that means white, middle-class Americans. And it, we're not given any physical description of Jesus. That doesn't matter. But it's easy for us to attach our values and our priorities to him as well, white, middle-class Americans. It's just, it's human nature to do that. You know, the, the most common caricature in the South of Jesus is Jesus as as strictly as a savior. He's just a big eraser. He erases our sins. That's what he does. He forgives us of our sins and anything beyond that is an optional extra for the super spiritual people. 
But even, even beyond, I think there's a tendency, maybe particularly in the South, but I do think this is true um, from what I know in the West, is that Jesus is primarily concerned with my personal happiness, my personal freedom, and my personal security. He wants me to live a life that I enjoy. He wants me to, to pursue the things that I desire. And he wants to keep me free from suffering and harm. That's what we want. And so then we project those things onto him and say, that's what he wants. That's what he wants for me. And that's what he wants for the people that I love. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. God's not against any of that. But if we think that's Jesus's primary uh, mission, or we think that's Jesus, those are his primary priorities, we, we created a caricature there. We've taken something that's true and we've overemphasized it and we're neglecting some other things. Jesus is primarily concerned about his kingdom and our character in the world, not about my happiness or my freedom or my security. Those things aren't bad. They're just not primary. And there's, there's, a, there's a piece there for all of us to grab onto. And to, to, it, it's easy to see the distortions that someone else has. It's harder to see them in ourselves. If we knew they were there, we would, we would most likely repent. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know that this is true, but I think it is. So you can decide. If my follow, if, so I'm following Jesus. If my life were to look the same, if I wasn't following him, then I'm probably not doing it right. If there's no place where Jesus challenges me, if there's no place where, G, where following Jesus would lead me down a road that I wouldn't otherwise take, that I'm probably not following. I'm probably following my version of him, not him. I'm really not that great a guy. And I would say the same thing for you. If you were to look at your life and say, well, if I wasn't following Jesus, what would be different? Maybe you wouldn't be in this room at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. You'd still be sleeping. That's something, but not a ton. It's not, I mean, honestly. Maybe you'd be keeping a bit more of your money. You'd be keeping 100% instead of 95% or 90%. Again, that's not nothing. I think there's probably more to it than that. And so there's, there's a, a tension point for me that I want us to step into and to be willing to acknowledge like that guy did. I can see, but people look like trees. I was thinking about if that was me. If Jesus healed me, I had his spit in my eyes, and now I can see. I've, maybe, I've never been able to see before, I guess. What would I say if he said, can you see? Would I have just said, yes. That's probably what I would have said. It's way better than what it was. Way better. And so I'd probably just be happy with what I got. I don't know that I'd be honest enough to say, well, not, not. I'm not quite there yet. I see people, but they look like trees. They're not super clear. The, the, whether, whether that's the, kind of that combination we talked about last week, that shameless audacity, this combination of humility and boldness that God is looking for, two weeks ago, that God is looking for from us when we approach him. To be able to say to Jesus, yes, but not, not fully, not clearly. Do we have that same posture to be able to say, Jesus, I can see you, but I, I want to acknowledge I don't see you clearly yet. 
My image of you is based on my experience. It's based on my culture. This is a big one. It's based on the areas of my own woundedness. We totally shift and shape our perspective of Jesus based on the places where we've been disappointed and hurt. 100%. We can see it in one another, but we can't see it in ourselves. We do that. We protect ourselves. And so we kind of create this picture of Jesus that, that goes along with the places where we've been bumped and bruised. And again, that, the, the humility and the boldness to say, I'm thankful for what I know. But I want to know more. I'm thankful for what I've experienced, but I want to experience more. I'm thankful for what you've taught me, but I need you to teach me more. Do you have that? Do I have that? So Romans 8, 29, we're predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what the Father is doing. He's trying to make us as much like Jesus as possible before we die. Not externally, but internally. And we only have a cut. That's what he is doing and so if you are following Jesus, that's what he's doing in your life all the time, in all circumstances, always. If you ever wonder what is God doing, he's always trying to make you more like Jesus. He's trying to use your disappointments. He's trying to use your suffering. He's trying to use your, the wins. He's trying to use your joys, all of the, your circumstances. He's, trying, he's using all of that stuff. It's just it's opportunity for him to form us and shape us. But we have, a, we have a part to play in that. We can either be like a block of marble, and then he's got to get out a hammer and a chisel. Or we can be like clay, and he can use his hands. He's going to do what he's going to do in terms of forming us and shaping us. It really, for us, it's just how much do you want it to hurt? Do you want him to use a hammer and a chisel, or do you want him to use your hands, his hands? So to me, that, that posture, that willingness to say, I acknowledge, I, I'm missing this, at least on some level. I have a tendency to say my priorities and my desires are yours. I'm conforming you into my image. I have to acknowledge, Jesus, you're not an American. That's, a, that's an obvious statement. But how mo most of us assume that he is. Again, not, if I asked you, you would say, of course he's not. But for most of us, the way we live, the things that we think he cares about, we think Jesus is a conservative American. And there's some truth there. But again, it's easy to turn that into a caricature where we're missing him. The humility to say, I don't see you clearly. I've been following you for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50, whatever it is. But I still don't see you clearly. There's still places that I'm overemphasizing, and there's still places where I'm underemphasizing. If I only had two words to describe God, his character, his character as most fully and clearly revealed in Jesus, it would be holy and love. Those two words. When we think about holiness, I mean, this is at the most basic. To be holy is to be other, is to be distinct. It, it, that speaks to, to God's greatness, his transcendence, his his majesty. It's kind of the things that in our mind make him God. The things that make him different from us. It's what separates him from us. And then love at the most basic is a willingness to give yourself away for the good of others. It speaks to God's mercy and his kindness, his grace, his desire to reconcile us to himself. It's what draws him near to us. Jesus 
perfectly embodies both of those things. He is holy love. And we, we can tend to set, most of us tend to separate those and we kind of lean one way or the other, again, based on all of those individual factors. Where we were raised and what our parents taught us and our first interactions with God and our own areas of sin and flesh and woundedness, we tend to fall one way or the other. We either maybe paint him a bit more on the stern side or a bit more on the kind of lenient side. He's maybe a bit kind of like our boyfriend or he's a bit kind of like our our father, maybe in a distant way. We, we, We do that. Those maybe just be two words to help hold those things together. Again, it's difficult for us to recognize the distortions in our own heart, but maybe just those two words, holy and love, they can give you a place to start. So we're going to close with this. I want you thinking, and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit. It's his job to lead us into the truth of who Jesus is. Here's a couple of things I want you thinking about. One, can I acknowledge that I'm I'm not all the way there yet? I see, but I don't see clearly. I don't just mean acknowledge that kind of in a mental way, but truly in your heart to say, I don't. I don't see him fully for who he is. Second, could you then, can we then say, Holy Spirit, so, so lead me more deeply into the truth of who Jesus is. And most likely, that's going to lead you back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's where Jesus is most clearly depicted. And you're going to, there's going to be some things there that jump out at you. I would encourage you, I think I've told you this before, I never go long without reading one of those four books. Plans are great. Read through the Bible. Do all of those things. I think they're wonderful. I would just say, don't go too long without reading one of those four books. Every other book, we need to read through the lens of those four. They're the most, that's the key. Again, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And so we, and we see that uh, in the gospels. We see this is what God is like. This is what it would look like if he lived among us. Anyway, you get that. So He'll probably lead you back there. And I would say when he does, just ask him, show me where I'm missing it. Where am I not seeing you clearly? He's not going to give you 700 things. There's going to be one. There's going to be one element of his character that he's probably going to cause you to lean towards. And you're not going to enjoy it a ton at first. Or else you already would have grabbed onto it. Again, in that, in that moment, that's the choice. Am I going to be marble or am I going to be clay? Am I going to yield Or am I going to resist? And I would encourage you to yield. He's still going to do what he's going to do. It'll just be less painful if you yield to him. And then we grow. And it's wonderful. So let's pray. Autumn's going to come back. She's going to lead us in a little time of ministry. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And that response is going to look a couple of ways. We'll leave the front open that you can come and stand or kneel. If you want to repent. If you want to acknowledge, hey, I'm... There's, I've, I've created a caricature, and, it's, and I'm, I'm acknowledging that here today, and I want to repent. And then we'll also have prayer teams here, and we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. Sorry. But um, if there's something, if you're saying, I want, I want to know him more, let these guys pray with you. And that's all they're going to pray. Jesus, reveal yourself to Autumn, the thing that she most needs right now. Show her in a way that she can understand. And we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to apply that to each one of us in the ways that are most meaningful. So I'm going to pray. I'd love for you guys to stand. 
ministry teams, if you want, you can come forward. We may have one in that corner. I'm not sure. I don't know if we have enough, but there'll be guys up here in the front for sure. And y'all pray with me if you're willing. Jesus, we acknowledge that we see, but we don't see clearly. Would you help us to see you more fully and more rightly? Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction to my heart, to the heart of each person in this room? What are we overemphasizing? And what are we underemphasizing? God, if there are any in this room who in their most honest moment would say, I'm blind. I don't see anything. I don't, I don't acknowledge Jesus as Messiah at all. Most important question any of us are ever going to answer is, who do you say I am? That determines your life and it determines your future, your eternity. God, I pray if there are any here today who they haven't answered that question yet. Holy Spirit, would you open the eyes of their hearts? Would they, in a way that they could understand, know how wide and high and long and deep is your love for them? And would they know their great need for a Savior? In the kindest way, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict of sin and of guilt and of righteousness in a way that draws us to Jesus. We all want to know you more, and we want to be conformed more into the image of your Son. So, Father, we give you permission to do that work within us. Give us grace to cooperate with you in these days and weeks and months ahead. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 